Chapter 12, From the American Puritans to the Revolution, The Theology of the Kingdom Christianity is a religion of hope. Every Christian agrees with this. The issue is, what is the nature of the church's hope? As we showed in the last chapter, there have been many Orthodox Christian leaders throughout the centuries who believe that the hope of the church included earthly and historical victory. This hope was always combined with the hope for the resurrection and eternal life, as well it should be. The hope of the church has never been exclusively or primarily earthly. But in many cases, Christians have expected social renewal, peace, justice, and holiness as the gospel advances powerfully throughout the earth. This part of the hope of Christianity has nowhere been stronger than among American Christians. In this chapter, we will show that some important early American theologians, political leaders, and teachers perpetuated the belief that the kingdom of God would be victorious on earth. The Puritans and the End of the World To a large extent, America was first settled by English Puritans. Though, strictly speaking, Puritanism was confined to New England colonies, the English settlers of Virginia and the Dutch settlers of New Amsterdam shared a Puritan outlook in a general sense. Moreover, by the time of the Revolution, a large contingent of Scotch Presbyterians could be found in nearly every colony. The late Yale church historian Sidney Alstrom wrote that Puritanism provided the moral and religious background of fully 75% of the people who declared independence in 1776. Nevertheless, we will confine our survey in this section to the Puritans and Pilgrims of New England. We should expect that early American Christians held views of the future of the church similar to those of the English Puritans. Our survey is especially important because of the distortions of Puritanism in some circles. In the April 1987 issue of the Omega Letter, for example, David Wilkerson states that, there is a deadly doctrine sweeping through charismatic circles called the Kingdom Message. It is infiltrating even Baptist and Assembly of God churches. Jimmy Swaggart is boldly taking a stand against it, and so am I. This is not an attack on any individual, but rather a scriptural expose of a doctrine that denies the soon return of Jesus Christ. The Puritans, way back in the 17th century, prophesied this doctrine would be the final deception. It is true that after 1660, some colonial Puritan leaders spoke of the imminent return of Christ, and many emphasized that the primary hope of the Christian was eternal heavenly life. But in general, the Puritans were not preoccupied with the end of the world, and their heavenly focus did not divert them from cultural efforts. As historian Harry S. Stout has written, Throughout the colonial period, ministers rarely preached specifically on millennial prophecies pointing to the end of time, and when they did, it was generally in the most undogmatic and speculative of terms. For the most part, they did not base their preaching on the assumption that history would stop tomorrow, and in this respect, they differed radically from popular millennium movements in Europe and post-revolutionary America, whose plans of action were governed exclusively by apocalyptic considerations. The past was the tried and true key invariably invoked by Puritan ministers to interpret the present. In many cases, they were optimistic about the future even in the face of seemingly inconquerable odds. One scholar notes, from the very beginning, the bent of the colonists in Massachusetts Bay, unlike their brethren in Plymouth, was not to withdraw from the world, but to reform it, to work within the institutional continuities of history rather than to deny them. Somehow this world's institutions had to be refashioned to reform to Christ's spiritual kingdom. 
the vision of our Puritan forefathers, given expression by John Winthrop in his Model of Christian Charity in 1630 aboard the Arabella, was that there was an earthly future for the faithful people of God. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as his own people and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways so that we shall see much more of his wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us and ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies when he shall make us a praise and glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, the Lord make it like that of New England for we must consider that we shall be like a city upon a hill. The eyes of all people are upon us. Times were tough for the Puritans but they did not conclude that the end of the world was just around the corner. They set out to carve a paradise out of a wilderness. They did not allow death, persecution, and tyranny to sway them from a dominion task. We are living off their spiritual capital. Education, Colleges, and Publishing One of the evidences that the Puritans had a long-term vision of the future is the establishment of colleges. Harvard College, founded in 1636, six years after the arrival of the Arabella, stated its purpose clearly. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17.3, and therefore lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. The initiators of Harvard wanted the Puritan legacy to continue. One of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches, when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. Obviously, the founders of Harvard assumed that there would be a posterity to be educated. These quotations also show that the Puritan founders were interested in a specifically Christian education. To counter the theological drift of Harvard, Yale College was established in 1701. The founders of Yale yearned to return to the Christian foundation first laid at Harvard. Yale, in the early 1700s, stated as its primary goal that every student shall consider the main end of his study to wit, to know God in Jesus Christ and answerably to lead a godly, sober life. The colonists understood the relationship between a sound education based upon biblical absolutes and the future of the nation. Yale College demanded the same rigorous education as Harvard. All scholars shall live religiously, godly, and blameless lives according to the rules of God's word, diligently reading the holy scriptures, the fountain of light and truth, and constantly attend upon the duties of religion both in public and secret. The influence of these early colleges should not go unnoticed. Not only were church leaders educated in their classrooms, but civil rulers gained an understanding of the application of biblical law to civil affairs. Puritans also rapidly began publishing concerns to educate their children for the future. The first printing press in the American colonies was set up at Cambridge in 1639, and from it in 1640 issued the first book, The Whole Book of Psalms, faithfully translated into English meter, whereunto is prefixed a discourse declaring not only the lawfulness, but also the necessity of the heavenly ordinances of singing scripture psalms in the churches of God. In 1661, a translation of the Bible in the language of the Algonquin Indians became the first Bible printed in America. It was the work of John Eliot, 1604-1690, a Puritan who dedicated his life to evangelizing and teaching the Indians, and who earned the title Apostle of the Indians. 
the establishment of colleges and the setting up of printing presses do not by themselves prove that the Puritans believed that the church would triumph on earth, but these activities do show that the Puritans were not abandoning the world and the future. Declension Fairly early in New England's history, and even more as the first generation of colonists passed away, the initial vision of the founders was lost to some extent. This was a part of a more general declension, a decline or crisis of American Puritanism. We are not able to examine the causes nor all the effects of this declension. Instead, we will simply note the effects that this crisis had on the confidence of Puritans in the future of their enterprise. The crisis produced a more negative tone in Puritan sermons. The preachers increasingly denounced the sins of the people and warned that God would abandon them. A new form of sermon arose, labeled the Jeremade by later historians. After the biblical prophet of doom, Jeremiah, New England had broken the covenant, said the preachers, and, as Winthrop had predicted, God was cursing the colony for its sins. As Perry Miller writes, In the 1640s there commenced in the sermons of New England a lament over the waning of primitive zeal and the consequent atrophy of public morals, which swelled to an incessant chant within forty years. By 1680, there seems to have been hardly any other theme for discourse, and the pulpits rang week after week with lengthening jeremades. Perhaps no late 17th century Puritan figure so captured the pessimistic imaginations of his contemporaries as the much ridiculed poet Michael Wigglesworth, 1631-1705. His The Day of Doom, a graphic depiction of the Day of Judgment, may have been, according to Miller, the first American bestseller, and his God's Controversy with New England, composed during a 1662 drought, traced the decline of Puritan piety as the colony was seduced by material prosperity. In the day of doom, Wigglesworth predicted a sudden appearance of the judge at a time when men stopped their ear and would not hear when mercy warned them, but took their course without remorse till God began to pour, destruction the world upon in a tempestuous shower. The same pessimism continued into the early 18th century. As in 17th century England, this dark vision of the future was closely linked to social and political circumstances. During the French and Indian Wars, Daniel Rogers warned that there is coming a day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God against such hard-hearted, impenitent sinners as despise the riches of God's goodness exercised toward them in the day of his patience in this world. Thus, at a surface level, it appears that the Puritans had changed their eschatology. But if we look deeper, we will see that this pessimism was in many cases based on the old confidence of their forefathers. New Englanders continued to believe that the Lamb would triumph, but not before suffering great tribulations. The fact that New England was not yet destroyed, the colonist victory in the Indian War known as King Philip's War, these indicated that God had not abandoned New England. Preachers usually did not predict defeat for the church Catholic, only a defeat for the New England churches if they did not repent. Thus, in the face of these troubles, many American Christians of the late 17th and early 18th centuries continued to express their confidence in the future advancement of the kingdom of Christ, and especially of New England's role in that advance. One of the major figures of the latter 17th century was Cotton Mather. Kirk House writes that Mather was born in 1663, took his M.A. from Harvard at age 18, and joined his father in his Boston pastorate. 
Widely regarded as the most brilliant man in New England, he wrote 450 books and was a fellow of the Royal Society. Scientist as well as pastor, he successfully introduced smallpox inoculation during the 1721 epidemic and had his house bombed for his trouble. One of Mather's numerous books was A History of Early New England, which he entitled Magnalia Christi Americana, or The Great Achievement of Christ in America. The sum of the matter, he explained, is from the beginning of the Reformation in the English nation, there had always been a generation of godly men desirous to pursue the reformation of religion according to the word of God. But in England, there were others with power in their hands who desired not only to stop the progress of the desired reformation, but also with innumerable vexation to persecute those that most heartily wish well unto it. The Puritans were driven to seek a place for the exercise of the Protestant religion according to the light of conscience in deserts of America. Their purpose was nothing less than to complete the Reformation, believing that the first Reformers never intended that what they did should be the absolute boundary of Reformation. On the future of the kingdom, Mather wrote, the tidings which I bring unto you are that there is a revolution and a reformation at the very door, which will be vastly more wonderful than any of the deliverances yet seen by the church of God from the beginning of the world. I do not say that the next year will bring on this happy period, but this I do say, the bigger part of this assembly may, in the course of nature, live to see it. Millennial expectations peaked during the French and Indian Wars. Many expected the second coming during their lifetimes. When it became clear that Armageddon had not occurred, ministers warned their congregations that the millennium could be far off in the future. Ezra Stiles said that for the present, God has great things in design for this American vine which his irresistible arm has planted. He purposes to make of us a great people and a pure and glorious church. Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening. These expectations had received renewed impetus from the Great Awakening that burned through New England from the 1720s to the 1740s. As historian H. Richard Niebuhr said, it is remarkable how under the influence of the Great Awakening the millenarian expectation flourished in America. The views of Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 1758, one of the leaders of the awakening and considered by many to have been America's greatest theologian, are worth examining in some detail. First, Edwards taught that the kingdom had dawned already in the death and resurrection of Christ. The old world is passing away and the new world is beginning and growing. The state of things which is attained by the events of this period, the death, resurrection of Christ, etc., is what is so often called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Second, Edwards believed that there had been several decisive events in the advancement of the kingdom since the time of Christ. These included the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the reign of Constantine, the rise of the papacy, and the Reformation. He expected an even fuller outpouring of the Spirit in the future, so that the gospel shall be preached to every tongue and kindred and nation and people before the fall of Antichrist. So we may suppose that it will be gloriously successful to bring in multitudes from every nation and shall spread more and more with wonderful swiftness. This great outpouring of the Spirit would be met with vicious opposition. Though Edwards admitted that, We know not particularly in what manner this opposition shall be made. Of one thing he was certain, 
Christ and his church shall, in this battle, obtain a complete and entire victory over their enemies. As a result, Satan's kingdom would be fully overthrown. In its place, Christ's kingdom would be set up on the ruins of it, everywhere throughout the whole habitage globe. These events would usher in a new era for the church. The church would no longer be under affliction, but would enjoy undiluted success. Edwards believed that this is most properly the time of the kingdom of heaven upon earth. The Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom would be fulfilled in this era. It would be a time of great spiritual knowledge, holiness, peace, love, orderliness in the church. All of this would be followed by the great apostasy and the second coming of Christ. At times, Edward used revolutionary language to describe this change. There are many passages in Scripture which do seem to intend that as well the civil as the ecclesiastical polities of the nations shall be overthrown and a theocracy ensue. But he qualified these statements very carefully. Not that civil government shall in any measure be overthrown, or that the world shall be reduced to an anarchical state, but that the absolute and despotic power of the kings of the earth shall be taken away, and liberty shall reign throughout the earth. While we may disagree with certain details of Edward's interpretations, he clearly and forcibly taught the earthly victory of Christ and his people. Edward's followers held out the same hope. Samuel Hopkins, in a 1793 treatise on the millennium, attempted to prove from the scriptures that the church of Christ is to come to a state of prosperity in this world. The multitude of languages would be replaced by a single international language, so that God will be praised in one tongue, as with one voice. In sum, the church of Christ will then be formed and regulated according to his laws and institutions in the most beautiful and pleasing order. There will then be but one universal Catholic church, comprehending all the inhabitants of the world, formed into numerous particular societies and congregations, as shall be most convenient to attend on public worship and the institutions of Christ. Joseph Bellamy, another of Edward's disciples, taught that a period of peace and righteousness would be achieved on earth, without any cataclysmic divine intervention. This renewed optimism fueled the hopes of the generation of the American Revolution. 18th century colonials held many of the same expectations that the 17th century Puritans had voiced before them. To many American clergymen in particular, it seemed increasingly likely that the millennial age would arise from this struggle for liberty and Christianity in which the colonialists were engaged. One of these, Ebenezer Baldwin, speculated that America might be the principal seat of that glorious kingdom, which Christ shall erect upon the earth in the latter days. Another New England preacher, Samuel Sherwood, said in 1776 that the government of George III appears to have many of the features and much of the temper and character of the image of the beast. He believed that the revolution was essentially an effort to advance the kingdom, and speculated that, the war with England may possibly be some of the last efforts and dying struggles of the man of sin. The eschatology of the American Revolution often took some unusual yet strangely familiar forms. An anonymous writer for the Sons of Liberty claimed that the American Revolution was prophesied in the book of Revelation. In particular, he believed that the beast was George Greenville, the British Chancellor of the Exchequer responsible for the Stamp Act. He concluded that the beast mark at Revelation 13 had been fulfilled by Greenville. 
Here, my beloved brethren, he brings forth the Stamp Act, that mark of slavery, the perfection and sum total of all his wickedness. He ordained that none amongst us shall buy or sell a piece of land, except his mark be upon the deed. And when it is delivered, the hands of both the buyer and seller must infallibly become branded with the odious impression. I beseech you then to beware as good Christians and lovers of your country, lest by touching any paper with this impression you receive the mark of the beast and become infamous in your country throughout all generations this of course was a political rather than a theological statement but it indicates something of the course that american thought was taking during the revolutionary period and it shows that modern dispensationalists are not the first to read their newspapers into the book of revelation conclusion we make no pretense that this has been a comprehensive survey of early American eschatology, yet we have seen that there was a strong current of eschatological optimism among American Christians throughout the first century and a half of the colony's existence. It took many different forms, and it waxed and waned with the flow of events, but it cannot be doubted that this was an important part of American religious life in the early years of the settlement of this country. As the newly formed republic entered the next century, this view became increasingly widespread.